Hello, my name is Andrew Gary, and welcome to Seismic Sound Off in depth conversations in applied geophysics. In this episode, Joe Dellinger discusses his upcoming 2022 Distinguished Instructor Short Course, Forensic Data Processing. The goal of Joe's course and this conversation is to get you thinking more critically about your data. How was it recorded? What is in it? What happened to it on the way from the field to numbers in a file? Joe brings his experience, expertise, wisdom, and humor to this essential conversation on data that will be valuable for every geophysicist. Start the new year with the fresh insights presented in this episode. Visit seg.org slash podcast for up-to-date information on Joe's upcoming course and book. This episode is sponsored by CGG. For over 90 years, CGG's positive outlook for the future has driven it to constantly push the boundaries of what's possible. This optimism, combined with new thinking and advanced technologies, helps CGG solve today's most complex natural resource, environmental, and infrastructure challenges. As this year draws to a close, CGG would like to wish SEG and its members every success in 2022. As always, CGG will be there to help you see things differently. And now, my conversation with Joe Dellinger. So Joe, let's uh, let's get started. Our audience is going to be excited to hear from you and excited to hear about this new short course and book alongside it that, that's going to be coming out soon. So your new 2022 Distinguished Instructor short course is called Forensic Data Processing, a continuation of uh, a little bit of the 2016 course that people might be familiar with. Why did you feel you wanted to revisit this topic six years later and, and uh, run it back? Well, to be fair, I was asked. <laughs> Basically, people seemed to like the distinguished lecture and asked me to re-up. And I said, okay, there is one advantage now. At, at the time I, dis- I did the distinguished lecture, a lot of people asked me like, okay, well, that was sort of interesting and we enjoyed your talk, but why did BP let you do all that? Like... <laughs> And the answer I could not tell them back then, but I can now, is, well, I, we, were, we were creating and uh, testing, et cetera, uh, a low-frequency marine seismic source. So, in fact, much of that stuff that I learned was to support that project. Yeah, we're going to revisit that project in a later question there. But just to get people maybe new to, to what you're talking about, what is the goal of the 2022 discourse? Well, how should I put it? So, so imagine that, uh, you know, you drive a car every day. And there are people who drive cars who just go and put the key in the car and, and turn it. And the engine starts and they know how to drive and they just don't think about it more than that. And those people will drive their car until like the engine blows up because they never change the oil or they will never get the brakes fixed. Or, you know, maybe all sorts of problems are happening with their car that are putting them in some danger or putting other people in danger, and they're just oblivious. Uh, I think in much the same way, many people just get seismic data, you know, and they process it and produce an image, and they're happy with the result. But, you know, they don't really understand what was going on 
before they got that data or what is what they might be doing to the data that's quite bad as long as they get an image you know they're they're satisfied but the breakthroughs i think in acquisition and processing often require some more careful knowledge and some more careful treatment of the data it's it's like if you're going to take your car and go drive it over a very bumpy back road or you're going to go race it or you're going to put it in an art car parade. Who knows what you're going to do? But as soon as you're doing something out of the ordinary, then you really need to understand your car a little better. So I would say that's one reason. And the second is just so when something is going wrong, you have a little more knowledge that might help you understand that there is something wrong and what might be going wrong and what to do about it. So that sounds kind of kind of gets to why you originally started wanting to explore this data more in depth. You know, one of the things that is pretty common that you you talk about in in the talk here is that people just have gotten used to that there's going to be noise in the data. So what made you say, okay, well that might be true, but let's look at this noise a little bit more in depth here than just accepting that there's noise here. Originally, we had a mystery uh, when people were were trying to do full waveform inversion and as you know Laurent Sierg, who was sort of the first to get it to really work at commercial scale uh was in the cubicle next to mine as he was doing it like literally 6 feet away from me and there was a mystery that as you pushed lower and lower in frequency well the, the first trick was we realized uh, recording on the ocean bottom was much better than streamers and that's pretty reasonable because the the streamers are being pulled through the water and the and the ocean bottom nodes are sitting on the quiet seafloor. So okay, that makes sense and I think anyone would understand that. But then there's the mystery of as you go down in frequency, the data is pretty beautiful right up until it's not. And there's almost like a wall that you hit and and we did not understand why is there this wall? What what is going on? And especially you know, we had all these uh, modeling results that would tell us about the amplitude of the Aragon array, et cetera. And, and we knew that it's peaking in amplitude at about 8 hertz. And so you would sort of think that the noise would just get worse and worse below 8 hertz, but it doesn't. It pretty much stays about constant until you get down to like 4 hertz. And then it rapidly falls apart. And this just didn't make sense. And we realized, well, what matters, what is the noise doing? You know, I mean, we know what the signal's doing, but what is the noise doing? And what it turns out is the noise is sloping off at the same rate as your air guns. And so the signal noise stays about the same right up until the noise is suddenly sloping up almost as fast as the air guns are sloping down. And that's when you hit the wall. And it all made perfect sense once we dug into the data and looked at what is the predominant source of noise as a function of frequency. And so that's the sort of thing where you won't know what to do about it until you understand the, the problem. Did you ever discover a useful aspect of, of the background noise in the data? Uh, well, an interesting thing. So at a certain point, as our Wolfspar project, that's our low-frequency source project, was getting a bit more expensive, and BP management was like, you know, you've told us that uh, the microseismic background noise, and that's not earthquakes, it's wind and waves, the microseismic background noise is a big problem at low frequencies. 
and you want to spend all this money on creating this gigantic uh, vibratory thing to make low frequencies. Prove to us that we can't use that background noise to uh, to get the low frequencies we need for FWI. So we're not going to give you more money until you go make a good faith effort at that. And at the time, actually, some other research groups uh, in academia had already tried to work on that problem and had not really come up with um, amazing results. They They sort of got some results, but not good enough to be interesting for practical applications. And so uh, we we had a small project where we dug into the data, tried to understand the noise. And what we discovered was actually, uh, this was primarily on a data set from Fall Hall, that uh, if you process the data carefully, in fact, you could use seismic interferometry to turn the background noise into quite impressive Uh, low-frequency virtual sources, meaning virtual meaning that you've made them by processing of the data. And uh, what we later understood was the reason that the other groups before us had not gotten those results was because they had just thrown all the data together and, and tried to process it. And you can't do that. You had to pick apart the data into the usable parts and the unusable parts and only use the usable parts. And you had to be very careful how you process the data because the unusable parts were much, much louder than the usable parts. And if you were at all uncareful on how you process the data, the little bit of leakage and frequency that comes from windowing, et cetera, would just destroy the, the usable parts of the data by having the unusable signal leak in. So, in fact, we were able to uh, demonstrate we could get virtual sources in the Valhall data. And uh, then actually working with academics, they were able to use those virtual sources to uh, image uh, shallow uh, structures down a couple hundred meters deep. So that was, we were able to show to management, there's data there, we can do some interesting things with it, but it's not P waves, it's surface waves. So uh, it was interesting, and, and we actually uh, had a project uh, that where we were going to try and do real-time shallow hazard monitoring at Valhall uh, using uh, passive energy. And unfortunately, the array shorted out, mm. <laughs> and that was that. <laughs> so uh, we don't yet know whether that uh, would have been possible or not, uh, but it looked very promising. And, uh, well, you know, sometimes things happen. Yeah, speaking of things happening, you know, have have what kind of developments in acquisition has surprised or exceeded your expectations between developing that 2016 course and working on this most recent one? Well, uh, the good news is when we went public with Wolfspar, it excited. It turned out we had competition out in the industry ready to go, but they were having trouble getting funding. And when we went when we went public with Wolfspar, that enabled them to get their funding. And uh, so we have several uh, competing uh, options now. Uh, there's uh, low impact seismic sources, which just got bought by Surcel, uh, has something called TPS, which looks very exciting. Uh, there's something called Gemini from Ion, and I think there's something called Harmony from Shearwater. And so there's multiple competing low-frequency source options now. So that's been exciting. And uh, I think I'm going to be happy if the wolf, the work I did on Wolfspar helped make those possible. I'll count that as a success. 
Well, speaking of Wolfspar, and we'll put a link uh, to this video in the chat, you know, you were recently honored at SDG 2021 in part for your creation of this new seismic source with the Virgil Kaufman Award. How does Wolfspar support data processing? Well, it was meant to be a prototype proof of, of principle. Uh, so I, what, did, what did the project prove? It proved that you can make a vibratory source that can make low frequencies. Uh, it proved that you can process that data and that the physics of the Earth does not care. An impulsive source and a vibratory source both make data you can process with. Uh, we had to work out some things that the industry will need if they want to do vibratory type sources. For example, how do you do reciprocity with vibratory sources? How do you do uh, pulse compression with a moving source, etc.? You know, we had to figure out some of these things. It also showed that, uh, you know, low frequencies will propagate. You can make a low frequency source and record it tens of kilometers away. We also showed what's really going on with the noise. You know, don't be too aggressive with your low cut filters in your acquisition. Uh, I mean, the, the reason people like to kill those frequencies is they look terrible in the data. Uh, once you've chopped the data up and look at it and destroyed the coherence in it, it just looks terrible. But, you know, if, if you're careful with how you treat the data, you don't need to kill all the low frequencies before you even, you know, write the data to disk. Uh, you can, you can record them and then do stuff, interesting stuff with them after the fact. And you don't kill them in your recording system. The work we did on at Valhall, I think, was also interesting. It showed that uh, there's some interesting things we could be doing with noise. And I'm hoping some people in the industry will pick that ball up and run with it. Uh, I think the Kaufman Award wasn't so much just for that one project, but just sort of for everything. <laughs> so it's a lot of things you've contributed, uh, not only to geophysics, but to SEG as well. It's a, it's a long list. Do you find now that it's more that it's common that geophysicists are coming in thinking more critically about the data that they receive? Uh, you know, I think actually, unfortunately, it's been going the other way. I think uh, increasingly people just sort of think the I'll run my magic algorithms on it. and. And I can take anything and turn it into something amazing using like machine learning. I think we need to fight against that trend and say, no, you, you need to understand what's going on under the hood, especially if you want to make major breakthroughs. You really need to understand what's going on under the hood or be very lucky, I guess. Uh, but I think it's, it's helpful to have some understanding of what's going on underneath the hood if you really want to do amazing things. What are some good starting questions for a geophysicist wanting to to look under the hood of their data a bit more and question what is happening? Well, I think number one is actually see if you can just go visit uh, an acquisition in the field. You know, get some feeling about how things really work in real life. You know, things go wrong. There's little glitches with the equipment. You know, the weather changes, you know, people forget to do things. Uh, you know, if, if you actually get to go visit an acquisition crew, uh, I think that's a good start. Then actually maybe go see some of the meetings where the people are talking about what's happening with the acquisition. You know, see, see what the reports that come in the field. You know, why is there a break in the data here? You know, it's because there was a turtle sighted. You know, why is there breaking the data here? It's because something broke. Uh, 
you know, we had to stop and fix it. You know, uh, why was there breaking the data here? Because the weather got too bad. And then you start to realize, oh, when I make this phase ring plot, I can see this funny striping in it. And then you realize, oh, that's because there was like several days of bad weather there, and that increased the the noise, uh, et cetera. Is that, you know, for the people getting the acquisition, is it pretty, is it uncommon to get notes and and kind of a log of what happened during the acquisition from the person down the line processing the data? You know, I think that information is available, but you generally have to ask for it. And another good example would be a lot of our equipment actually has little, you know, problems with recording equipment. So, for example, I've seen data where there was a little glitch in the data every 65535 samples, data where there's a little glitch in the data once a second, a little glitch in the data once a minute, and all these things are probably in your data if you if you would look for them. And uh, if you don't look for them, you will be blissfully ignorant. And what I found in every one of these cases, when I went back to the to the acquisition vendor and said, "Hey, what's what's going on here?" and they the answer was always like, "Oh, we hope no one would notice that." That <laughs> <laughs> I never had an example where I found something uh, where the acquisition people didn't already know about it. So that information is out there if you know to, to ask. And and often when you ask such a question, then they will treat you much better because they realize, oh, this is a sophisticated user. We'd better better uh, treat them well because you know they're on to they're watching us like a hawk. So I think you actually get better performance out of the out of the vendor if they understand that you are a sophisticated consumer. You know the the name of this course is called forensic data processing. What what's kind of exciting to you about looking at your job in part as this forensic investigator of the data? Well, I don't think I, that was ever actually my title. It's just sort of what I ended up doing. It, it sort of began with uh, there was a, a strange earthquake in the Gulf of Mexico in 2006, and several academics contacted us and said, hey, that wasn't the usual earthquake. You all should should study that. And we realized we had our big 2006 Atlantis node survey going on uh, when the earthquake happened. And we wondered, did we record that? You know, and our first thought was, well, you know, do you even record like earthquakes? They're so low frequency with our standard equipment. You know, so we didn't even know whether it would show up in our data. And if you just glanced at the data, it wasn't real obvious. But without much digging into the data, then, oh, yeah, it was dead obvious in the data. And so uh, I had a, uh, I made a proposal to uh, management, let's save some continuous data from that time, which was not the standard thing to do back then, to save any continuous data. And uh, and then let's see what we can do with it. And I ended up uh, co-authoring a paper with the uh, co-authors in the USGS and academia, where we use that data with the USGS to help them like reevaluate uh, the mechanism and et cetera of the earthquake. And so basically that was such a weird thing to do with the data. That's what got me into this mindset of thinking about the data differently. Don't think of it as a pre, pre-chopped up and packaged product, like a packaged food that's already been chopped up and prepared. You know, think about it as vegetables still growing in the ground that, you know, you can 
processed in all sorts of different ways. You know, so it basically would be the the analogy I would use is, you know, there's bugs in your food. You know, when you eat your prepackaged food, you're just eating the bugs along with the food and you don't know better. Um, what I was doing with the earthquake was the equivalent of picking through the, the, the salad from the lettuce and finding the bugs on it and going like, okay, oh, that's an interesting bug. Let's study it. <laughs> so that was one. And, and because of that, then I was sort of uh, set to be the person to ask when we decided, let's try and see what it takes to get low frequencies. And they thought, well, who's already looked at data in weird ways? Well, Joe has because of that earthquake. And so one thing led to another. And then I was like Mr. Low Frequency Source Project. And then uh, actually the Norwegian government was talking to the people of Valhall saying like, hey, you got that array there. You spent a lot of money on that. What can you do with it in between surveys? And then management simultaneously was saying like, hey, you know, could we use passive energy to uh, to get the low frequencies we need? And so that led into yet another interesting project that involves doing weird things with data. So yeah, one thing led to another, led to another. I sort of created my own weird job. That's a, a good way to do it through the years, you know, and in addition to these major contributions of geophysics that we're talking about here, you know, you enjoy quite a few hobbies, including, you know, attending the, the Houston Symphony, photographing birds. Most people might might know your interest in astronomy. Do you do you think that your hobbies have contributed to you to you as a geophysicist? Well, actually, yes. Uh, so, for example, uh, one you did mention, so it often would happen. I would go out to the observatory to, to image an asteroid uh, that I was, you know, trying to get its orbit nailed down. And, uh, you know, I'd get some pictures shot off and then it'd cloud over. And the night was over for astronomy. And, you know, it's an hour drive out there and the equipment takes an hour to warm back up. And you, so you're stuck there for an hour. And what do you do? So, well... You go out in the swamp and record frogs. <laughs> so I have many, many hours worth of frog recordings. And then I discovered like, well, you take the frog recordings and you slow them down and, and they're bat recordings. And then you take the recordings and you speed them up and they're train recordings. Huh. <laughs> and that sort of got me into the whole idea of listening to seismic data which turns out to have all sorts of interesting things. So, for example, when we were testing our, our low-frequency source at Seneca Lake the first time, we had a, a company out there monitoring us because we had, to, we had to show our sound levels to get permitted to go to the Gulf of Mexico. So you have sort of like an independent auditor company out there that's measuring all your sound levels. Their data, data from ocean bottom nodes we paid to have you know, out there, data from hydrophones that we threw over the side of the platform, data from the Navy, and data from like uh, the US Array, which was like a, a USGS, like uh, earthquake monitoring system that was rolling across the US and just coincidentally happened to be passing by where we were. So I had all these different sources of data and I could compare them all against each other. And what I found was the U.S. Navy had uh, a low-cut filter in their data they didn't know about. Uh, the independent uh, auditor, uh, one of their nodes sank halfway through. So the, the data all fit to a certain point, and then it didn't. And then I was trying to figure out what happened. 
And so then I listened to the data, and what I heard was the sound of the node being winched up and then people talking and poking at it and then redeploying it. Wow. <laughs> and then what, I, what the data showed was then when they redeployed it, it sank to the bottom of the lake. <laughs> and then once I realized that, I could reprocess it now, assuming that it's not in the midwater anymore, but it's on the bottom of the lake. And then suddenly all the data made sense. Yeah, actually, I think uh, thinking about listening to, to the data has, has, has been something I got from my hobbies. You know, if you had 60 seconds to talk to a manager to help them understand why they should send staff to this course, what would you say? I think I'd basically say that uh, if you want to make major breakthroughs or even small breakthroughs in how you process the data, it, it's really useful to understand a bit better than, than most what goes into it, because if you're going to do new things with the data, that's probably going to require new ways of thinking about the data. And in fact, all your processes are only debugged to the extent that you use them all the time. As soon as you try and do anything outside the envelope of what you're doing every day, you will discover every process is buggy, every process has problems, every process needs improvement. And so understanding the limitations of the data and, and how you're processing it is useful. And I think it's also just a good idea because when things go wrong with the data, for example, it's you'd read it as the wrong Segway format. It's quite common, unfortunately, to process the data quite far, maybe even all the way through, and not notice that you converted it using the wrong Segway format right at the beginning. And that just destroyed your low frequencies, but in a not very obvious way. And so if you want people to catch things like that, which are going to happen otherwise, they just need a little training to think about their data a bit more cynically, you know, with a bit more of a jaundiced eye and say, hey, you know, that doesn't look right. Go back and check that. And I think if, if they just think of it, you know, like you, you can't think of your car like it's a refrigerator. You know, you just get in and turn the key and expect it to work and never do any maintenance. No, your car is going to let you down at some point if you treat it that way. And I, I'd say the same thing. If that's how you treat your seismic data, your seismic data is going to let you down at some point if you treat it that way. You know, lastly here, Joe, what is one piece of advice you would offer someone that would like to succeed in your field? Well, uh, number one is I think... Uh, be willing to talk to people outside your close discipline to try and understand what they can teach you uh, is one. And number two, I think, is actually more for managers, which is I think we get a bit excessively tied up with secrecy. One of the things I've really learned in my career is the the only secrets that that are worth keeping are the ones that keep themselves. So invariably, if you have some amazing new processing that produces some nice result. You're going to have to show it to partners. As soon as you do that, uh, the partners will, will understand that it's possible, and then they'll figure it out. And so often what we see is something's impossible right up to the point where it becomes possible. So what changed? You know, like Laurent Sierg got FWI to work, and suddenly, not very long after, everybody could get FWI to work as well as Laurent. What changed? What happened was they all had little bugs and problems and things in their codes, or et cetera, et cetera, and, and those were preventing them from getting it to work. And then 
once they knew, no, this can work, well, then they went back and tried again, looked more carefully until they got it to work. So the only real secret was it's possible. And once somebody knows that, they'll figure it out. (laughs) So, and that's not a secret you can really keep because you have to show your results to others at some point. And as soon as you do that, they know, oh, that's possible. And then they'll figure it out. (laughs) So I think you can also learn uh, as uh, as a researcher Often the limiting factor to what's possible is just these stupid little niggling problems in your codes and procedures and such. And those may actually be the limiting factor. Uh, Now, it's hard to know. It may really be impossible with the data you've got. But often, as we've seen with FWI, et cetera, the limiting factor was just getting the details right. Well, that's an optimistic and nice place to to leave it. I think, Joe, I appreciate this conversation. There'll be dates forthcoming for for the discourse soon. So keep an eye out for that and uh, wish you well on this tour and, and finishing up the book. Thank you. Thank you for listening to SEG's flagship podcast, Seismic Sound Off. SEG produces these episodes to benefit its members, the geophysics community, and inform the public on the value of the science. To show your support for the show, please share this episode with a friend, colleague, or manager that would enjoy hearing this show. Your recommendation is the single best action you can take on behalf of SEG's podcast. To receive the latest episodes first, follow Seismic Sound Off on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. The SEG podcast team is Ted Bakamjan, Kathy Gamble, and Ali McGinnis. Thank you for listening. This is Seismic Sound Off, signaling off.